That brings us to the next section, the exile and return. So remember, during the 700s and 600s, we have the final kings, and then we have the prophets simultaneously. So in 722, the exile of Israel in the north comes at the hand of the Assyrians. And in 586, the exile of Judah in the south comes at the hand of the Babylonians. And they enter into exile. Now this is the theme too that you see throughout the Bible. Sin always leads to exile. We saw this originally in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were casted out of the garden eastward away from God's presence. They were sent into exile as a judgment. Then we see with Cain, when he sinned against God, God cast him out of his presence, or Cain actually, Cain chose to walk away from God, and he moved eastward into his own exile that he created for himself as a refusal, as a result of not repenting to God. We see this again when they moved eastward away from the ark, the ark that God had just put the family of Noah in to save them. Members of that family, the children again came along and they moved away from the ark going eastward to build the Tower of Babylon. And they exiled themselves. Then God scattered them further as a result of their sin. We see Lot moving eastward as he walks away from the promises of God and moves towards Sodom and Gomorrah, which becomes his own exile by being attracted to the city rather than the promises of God. We see Jacob, who goes eastward out of the promised land, which was the new Garden of Eden, because he's running away from God, running away from his family that he should have trusted God to get the blessings for, but instead tried to do it through his own efforts, and then has to flee his family in the land of blessing and goes eastward out of the land into exile with Laban and just totally gets messed up by Laban there. And so we see this with Elijah, when Elijah moves eastward out of the land into exile, and none of the Israelites go with them. And Israel is thrown into this judgment of God with no rain for three years. And Elijah is living three years in exile. Now, Elijah is not going to exile for his own sins. He's not walking away from God in his rebellion. He goes into exile as a metaphor, a symbology of what Israel is doing. God does not move all of Israel out of the promised land, but he moves Elijah out of the promised land to symbolically say that just as your head is going to exile, it's symbolic of all of you have gone into exile because you're disobedience to me. And it becomes a foreshadowing and a warning of their future exile. So when the Assyrians and the Babylonians come, they take Israel and Judah and move them eastward out of the promised land into exile. And there is no blessings outside the land. Because remember, it is the land that we're connected to. We're meant to reap the blessings of the land, and we are to rule over the land, ruling and subduing it, putting down the chaos. The land gives us life, and we give the land life. We work it and provide blessings, and the land gives us blessings. And when we disobey God, we lose that connection. And now that Israel has disobeyed God, they've lost connection with the land, the garden. And so they are thrown into exile. God showed Ezekiel in a vision of chapter 1 that the Shekinah glory of God that was indwelling the temple was leaving. When God left Israel, he was abandoning Israel. And no longer was he in the garden with them anymore or what was supposed to be the garden, Israel. Therefore, they would no longer have his protection and his blessing anymore. 
Assyria and Babylon was able to take them into exile because God removed himself from Israel and he gave them over. But at the same time in that vision, Ezekiel saw the Shekinah glory of God leaving Israel, leaving the promised land so they would no longer be protected and blessed by God. But he also saw going towards Babylon. Some people had already been taken there before Shekinah glory of God left. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Ezekiel was already in Babylon. And he sees that after they've all been taken into exile, he sees a vision of the Shekinah glory of God going out of promised land into Babylon, and then the Babylonians destroying the temple. And what God was saying there is not only have I left the land and left you as my covenant people to the judgment of the wilderness outside the promised land, but I'm also going to go with you into exile. I'm not going to bless you as a nation with the land flowing with milk and honey because you are in exile. But I'm not going to abandon you and allow you to just suffer in isolation. I will go with you. And if you turn back to me, I'm not going to bring an end to physical exile until the 70 years are up. But if you turn to me and trust me in exile, I will personally and individually take care of you and bless you. And that's what we see with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They go into exile, and God is there with them, and he begins to bless them. And now, they're not in the promised land, surrounded by the pagans. They are now in the pagan nation themselves. And it would seem that outside the land, in the very hands of the pagans, that there's no way that they could ever experience any kind of blessings or hope or life. And yet, because of their faith, God still takes care of them. And not only does he bless them, but he uses them to affect the corrupt leaders of these pagan nations. And even Nebuchadnezzar III of Babylon is brought into a covenant relationship with God through Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's faith and demonstration. And so here we see that even in exile, God can still use us. Even in exile, he'll still bring blessings. Even in exile, he's bringing the foreign nations into the covenant community. In fact, more foreigners probably came into the covenant community during this time than ever the time that Israel was living in the land. Because God is beginning a new age where he is opening the doors wider and more fully to the Gentiles than he ever had before. Mostly because Israel fails to do it, God is going to do it himself. Members, and not just Babylon, but Persia, leaders and members of the Persian Empire also came to God in the covenant community. Yahweh then gave visions to Daniel, showing him there were many more powerful and corrupt nations to come. But one day Yahweh would destroy them with the coming messianic king, who would then build the kingdom of Yahweh on earth. God showed them, this is not going to end. All the nations are corrupt. All governments are corrupt. The Tower of Babylon was just the beginning. Assyria, Babylon, Persia are just one of many more that many have come and many more that are yet to come. And in Daniel's visions, God makes it very clear there is, not any, there is no nation, no government that is not corrupt. There's no institution that stands within the will of Yahweh that is seeking to obey Yahweh, is reaping the full covenant blessings of Yahweh. Yes, 
God blesses nations that are not obedient to him, but that's out of his faithfulness, but not full covenant blessings. There is no nation that will experience that, and we're going to see this over and over and over again. And the prophets also portrayed that. Yet, one day, God would bring an end to this continuous cycle of corrupt nation after corrupt nation after corrupt nation after corrupt nation that gradually get bigger and bigger and bigger and more powerful. And we see this in this statue of the multi-metaled statue that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And that even though these metals get stronger and stronger and stronger and more powerful as we go through history, that eventually the rock, the rock of God, who is Christ, will come and destroy them all. And this rock will grow into a giant mountain that will fill the entire earth. So Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the kingdom of God starting as a tiny rock growing into a large mountain that fills the earth. Jesus builds on that of talking about the tiny mustard seed that grows into the giant mustard tree that fills all the earth. These two ways the kingdom of God are portrayed as a small starter but grows into the entire world. In one vision, Daniel actually saw the messianic king that he called the son of man, described it as a sinless divine human to whom Yahweh would give all power and authority who would rule over all the nations of the earth forever. So in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14, Daniel said this, In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Now we talked about this in the book of Daniel, but the phrase son of man means human. Every time you see this phrase in the Bible, pre-Daniel, and every time outside of the Bible, son of man just means he's a human. Because this phrase, son of X, X is the variable, means that whatever X is, that's what the son is. So if you're the son of a goat, you are a goat. If you're the son of a god, then you are a god, a divine supernatural being. If you're the son of a man, you are a man. Just like there's that TV show, The Sons of Anarchy. It doesn't mean that anarchy has little children. It means that they are the same thing as anarchy. They are anarchists themselves. They create anarchy. And so he's saying, I see a human. Now remember, this is revolutionary because every single vision that we've ever seen of heaven, every divine council vision we've ever seen in the Bible up to this point, there's never humans in it. There's always these angelic beings and there's always these strange creatures. And the only human that we actually see is the prophet who's taken out of his body and seen this in a vision. But the prophets are never, ever physically there, dwelling there. And even if they're there temporarily in a vision, they don't live there. They're not a part of heaven because they're with sin. Humans cannot go to heaven unless they're without sin. Or they're either without sin because they haven't sinned yet, or later they are without sin because Jesus atoned for their sins. But that hasn't happened yet, the atonement part. So he sees a human, and he'd be like, what the heck? Why is a human in heaven? We've never recorded that ever. But he's coming with the clouds of heaven. The only thing that ever rode the clouds were divine beings. It is only the sons of God, which we know as angels, or false gods, or um, spiritual beings, or Yahweh himself that rides on clouds. Cloud riders is an imagery of divine beings. Because the only thing that's above the clouds are the gods and the ancient way of thinking. 
And so now we're told that this being, this man, is also a divine being. It's a supernatural being. We're like, how can that be both? He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, one of the other ways that you could briefly get into the presence of God, only through visions if you were surrounded by angels. We're told in Deuteronomy 33, in Galatians chapter 3, in Acts chapter 7, that when Moses came into the presence of God on Mount Sinai, he was surrounded with thousands upon thousands, or a myriad of angels, and that they were a buffer between him and God, so that God's glory would not kill and wipe out Moses as a sinner, because he did not have the atonement of Christ, nor was he sinless. And so the only way you can go there, yet there are no angels that come with this being as he approaches the Ancient of Days, who is Yahweh, which means he's without sin. He was led in his presence. He was given authority, all authority, all glory, and all sovereign power. All nations and all people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This links right into the prophecies of the Messiah, Messiah in Genesis 49 and in Numbers 22 and all the prophetic prophecies. The difference is it's not just that he's going to build a kingdom on earth that all the nations are going to be a part of. It's that he's given all authority and all glory and all dominion and power and that his kingdom will be an everlasting one that will never be destroyed. The only being that has all power, all glory, all nations and his kingdom never ends is Yahweh. So Daniel sees a vision of a being that is human and is God and is sinless and is Yahweh himself. But it can't be Yahweh because Yahweh is giving this being everything. The Jews didn't know what to do with this. They knew it wasn't wrong because God gave it to them. But they also didn't like the picture of painting because God is not a man and men are not sinless. And so they didn't know what to do with it. And so the son of man phrase becomes a title of a figure that they're kind of scared of because it feels blasphemous, a human that is God, but also is a figure of a Messiah that they've been long awaiting. And they don't know what to do with this title, this phrase, son of man. Now this is a pointing towards Christ because when Christ comes, he uses this title, Son of Man, of himself, more than any other title that the Bible or we as believers today use of Jesus Christ. And so he was saying, I am the God-man who is sinless and comes on the clouds and has all power, glory, and an everlasting kingdom. And he's going to prove that in his ministry.